This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk a little bit about where we are in the stock market. I think uh, Carol is entering this segment with a little bit of trepidation because Sandy Villery is here, partner at Villery Funds, looking after about $2 billion. He's based down in New Orleans. We've been talking about the Saints. We've been talking about LSU. We've been talking about University of Georgia. He's going to the SEC Championship this weekend, but we're not going to talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. We're going to talk about the market. Sandy, great to have you. Thanks oh, wait. I'm me. sorry. Oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. You just, did you check out? Did you go to your happy place? I'm actually looking for a Giphy that's got an eye roll so that I can tweet oh, it out. Oh, good. Good. Well, that's <laughs> Jiffy, great. Giphy, Giphy, Giphy. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about investing. Yeah. So what, what's the state of the markets uh, here, Sandy? You know, I feel like the theme that's developed on this program over the past couple of weeks is, oh, man, this feels much better than than we did certainly back in September, even with those uh, sort of unpleasant couple of days earlier in the week. How do we finish the year? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, we, we were more, uh, I'd say, Fed driven. So everything was revolving around. Are we going up or down on interest rates? And now that um, looks like inflation is comfortably below you know, their target at 2%. I think that kind of Fed risk or interest rate, uh, you know, possibility of uh, rate hikes or that sort of thing are kind of, you know, there's nothing that's going to happen from that front probably for another 12 months. So now it's all trade war related. So that's what's kind of been uh, moving moving things uh, recently. And if, if the trade war, if it causes some headline risk and that sort of thing, we're going to look for our individual stocks to try to find good value. And I do think we, uh, I, I think these little dips in here are going to be great opportunities before the, the December 15th trade trade war deadline and and I think you'll be pleasantly uh, uh, surprised to have a nice uh, Christmas rally. Let's talk about your fund, the Villary Balance Fund beating just about all of its peers so far this year. It's returning nearly 20%, 89th percentile according to Bloomberg data. Um, what's balance mean right now? What's the right balance strategy in this environment? Yeah, so in a, in a, in a perfect environment, I guess we'd be about 70% in stocks and 30% in bonds and we're, we're actually a little bit heavier uh, on in, in cash right now. Um, as, as the market goes higher and higher, we How tend much to, heavier? Actually, we're about 10 to 10 percent in cash that's that a, sounds like a lot yeah for us it is when we're we're, we're historically one to two percent in cash so wow we've uh, recently taken some profits in a few names that have uh, you know kind of uh, exceeded our expectations so and, have you backed out of more of the fixed income or backed out of more of the equity side because they've done okay yeah so we're, we're down to about 62 percent in in stocks right now so we've kind of backed out of that and then we're kind of at the minimum level on uh, bonds as well just thinking that you know with rates going as low as they have maybe there's not much more you know left in in the bond market either so are you with that high cash position is it just a case you're waiting for some new equities that kind of catch your attention to invest in or is it because you think a recession's near <laughs> yeah no, no that basically we, we we see it as sort of bullets in the gun and if you think about last year december of let's call it december of 2018 when the market fell 9.2 percent that gave us the opportunity to get two new names to work and literally between christmas and new year's we were able to put uh buy two more stocks so we're looking for opportunities and, and volatility to buy. So let's talk about some of the names that you like. On Semiconductor is a really interesting one, not one we hear about a ton, but you like it. Why? Yeah, so we had owned Cypress Semiconductor, mm -hmm. and Cypress got bought out by Infineon for, for literally um, like – 
15 times uh, love crazy. That. You yeah. love that when yeah, that happens, Yeah, it's a big right? price. Yeah. We were happy, nice premium, and, and so uh, there wasn't le- much left in that. And so we switched to On Semiconductor, and really we think it's a, kind of a secret way to play uh, the 5G build-out because they had no exposure, no content at all on, on 3G or 4G, yet they have $100 of content on each of these base stations that uh, they've got almost all the, su- all the suppliers, um, so they're involved in all of those, and I think that's going to be a, a nice play for them. It looks like, though, I'm just going to our FA page on the Bloomberg, it looks like revenue Revenues, though, have been declining uh, quarter to quarter, year over year. Uh, same thing with earnings. So what um, what's the problem here? What, what's interesting is if you look at uh, – uh, they do have exposure to auto. So they're in um – they're in, you know, Europe. We saw weaker auto numbers. Uh, China, we saw weaker auto numbers. The amazing thing is, when you look at their peers, their peers are down like nine or ten percent because of that. They were only down two percent, so they're they're doing much better. And it's because of the content story in autos, where each iteration of these electric vehicles or autonomous uh, vehicles, uh, they're getting more and more of their content um, on, on each one. So that's what's uh, that's what's helping them out. Talk to me about eHealth. That's another interesting name because I had did an interview earlier today. We're going to play out uh, with the CEO of IAC, and he was talking about getting into the travel business early, sort of early internet, early 2000s. eHealth is sort of trying to do what Expedia and Travelocity were doing, right? Yeah, no, that, that, that's it, and it's, it's amazing. If you compare their, their website, which eHealth.com, and you compare it to Medicare.com or you compare it to healthcare, uh, I'm sorry, .gov, uh, it, it's it's an amazing difference. The other, the government-run website is so clunky. Uh, theirs is extremely slick and a true e-commerce uh, website. Uh, love the demographics. 10,500 people are turning 65 in the U.S. every single day. 60 million uh, seniors are, are eligible for their for, for Medicare, and they just have 1% market share. We're hoping it gets up to 4% market share. So, so they sell insurance. They do. It's the- this is a stock that's up 134% this year, and we're talking about a forward-looking PE of about 41, which is fine if the ju- if the growth rates justify that. When did you get into this name? We, we actually got in um, with, within about 30 days ago. We bought it How many days? Fi- about, it was around $58, $59 a share. There was um, a lot of headlines on that. It's at 90 it. now. It's at 90. It's been a great performer so far. Right. But this is kind of my, you know, what I'm saying in terms of use these macro headlines to sort of find individual stories and, and buy them quickly because uh, when there was... Uh, the, the Medicare for all uh, discussion, this stock got absolutely walloped as um, this would kind of this wouldn't do so well for their business if if uh, every you know you didn't have to go purchase healthcare. When or, the market gets slammed down, whether it was three months ago, whether it was August, is that when you do a bunch of buying? Yeah, actually we did. So um, and and that's 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 what we're that's what we're hoping to do, and um, we we will continue to take advantage yeah. of volatility to buy good stocks. You want the markets to be beat up a little bit, we, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit of volatility. Use it as your friend, not your enemy. Yeah. All right. Cool. Sandy Villery, partner at Villery Funds, based down in New Orleans. Go Tigers, go Saints, and that is spelled G E A U X. Go. I'm just I'm saying. rolling my eyes. I know. Me and Taylor Swift. I just put it on Twitter. Oh boy. All right. <laughs> you must be alive. So we do want to talk about vaping, already under scrutiny for health risks and deaths. It was linked to a rare type of lung damage in a new case report released just yesterday. Controversy of the safety of e-cigarettes. Man, it is raging big time in the U.S. where the deaths of as many as 47 people have been linked to a different severe respiratory illness. The FDA, meantime, has said it does not know when final guidance will be issued when it comes to e-cigarettes. So let's talk about regula- uh, regulations of uh, the e-cigarette market. With us is Dr. Joanna Cohen, Professor of Disease Prevention and Director of the Institute 
Institute for Global Tobacco Control at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joining us on the phone from Baltimore, we do want to point out that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Michael Bloomberg has also committed $160 million in an effort to ban flavored e-cigarettes and vaping devices. Dr. Cohen, nice to have you with us. This is certainly um, one of the big issues that the country is grappling with, and I think regulators are as well. You know, what are some of the issues that are front and center when it comes to vaping regulation? Right. Well, this is a tricky issue, exactly as you say. On one hand, we want to help get cigarette smokers off of cigarettes because that's the most harmful thing you can do. Um, So the idea of e-cigarettes and and the promise of them was to really provide that off-ramp for cigarette smokers. The problem is that um, instead we've seen a huge uptake of e-cigarette use among kids, and that's exactly not what what we want to see. It's turned out to be a public health disaster. And so... What happens next from a regulatory perspective, Dr. Cohen? Because, you know, one of the interesting things that Carol was alluding to this, it's happened very fast that the government uh, and I think even public health advocates have really identified this as a major issue. How do we get sort of smart regulation, but it sounds like in a relatively quick manner, given the speed at which this is all happening? That's right. So um, one of the things that's very concerning with the huge increase in use among kids is that the vast majority of them are using flavored e-cigarettes. We also hear that cigarette smokers who are using e-cigarettes to quit also like flavors. So it gets really tricky. How do you get uh, flavors to cigarette smokers who are trying to quit but keep them completely away from the kids? So it it does get tricky, and I think that's why the FDA is taking a little bit of time to make sure that they get it right. So I guess what I'm trying to understand, too, is I feel like we have various conversations where folks say the problems are with, like, black market e-cigarettes. But, I mean, the point that you're making is we obviously don't want these in the hands of children. For smokers who are trying to break the habit, e-cigarettes is a better option. Is that fair? Is that correct? Well, we still don't have great evidence yet that it really does help cigarette smokers quit, but that was the promise. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's the one reason why we would we might have e-cigarettes well, on the market. What's interesting, too, and I know Bloomberg Business Week magazine has covered this um, in depth in terms of how quickly e-cigarettes seem to get to be able to come to market, um, even though the FDA oversight wasn't necessarily all in place. I mean, how did that happen? Well, when e-cigarettes first came into the market, the FDA saw them and thought, hey, this is a smoking cessation device and we need to regulate it as other smoking cessation devices. So we certainly have approved nicotine replacement therapy and other pharmaceutical products that have been shown to be effective to help smokers quit. Um, But e-cigarette companies sued and said, we don't want to be regulated like smoking cessation devices. We want to be regulated like tobacco products. And that put a huge delay in the process. Mm -hmm. It's taken a while uh, for all the administrative pieces to fall into place for the FDA to actually be able to now uh, take action in regulating e-cigarettes like tobacco products. 
And so what are the companies saying at this point? Because as you're alluding to, Dr. Cohen, you know, companies have very powerful voices among regulators, among lawmakers. I mean, we've seen that for decades uh, in the case of tobacco. Uh, what are they saying and doing that may either help this move along or hinder it? Well, they certainly have their backs against the wall right now and um, trying to uh, maintain credibility and, and trying to maintain as, many, as much profits as they can as, um, as the regulators are, are working to also uh, address the public's health and, and keep kids away from these products. So, you know, on one hand, we hear about one of the major e-cigarette companies um, taking flavors off the market in this country. But just like we've seen with big tobacco in the past, they still have their flavors on the market in other countries around the world. So, you know, they're just uh, acting where they feel the pressure and not really taking the high road and and thinking about the the true impacts of their products. Bottom line, just got about 30 seconds here. Do you think that we just went too fast on this? Uh, we they went too fast. We went a little too slow, and um, and we're in a bit of a, a tragedy right now. Where um, you know, hopefully now our politicians are uh, going to be more concerned about doing right by the kids than by uh, concerned about votes in the next election, and that we can uh, pull this epidemic under control. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Um, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much. Joanna Cohen, Professor of Disease Prevention, Director of the Institute for Global Tobacco Control at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, that school supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And as we mentioned early, earlier, Michael Bloomberg has also uh, committed uh, money to an effort to ban flavored e-cigarettes and vaping devices. All right, so let's talk a little motorcycles. We have got just the man to do it. Jason Chinook is here. He is CEO of Ducati North America. And can I just start by saying, we're going to talk about new bikes and stuff like that, but can I just say, this must be like the coolest job in the world. Unquestionably, it's definitely one of the coolest jobs. Because you're a motorcycle guy. I mean, you actually started working behind the counter at a, like doing motorcycle parts, right? Yes, I did. In fact, it was something that years ago I was following a different career path and I made the decision. I said, okay, this is clearly not working out for me, this other way I was going. And so I decided I'm going to follow another passion in life. And I started doing my homework, research, informational interviews with executives in the motorcycling industry. And then I realized, I said, the way for me to really learn this is just to cut my teeth at the, at the beginning, at the very bottom. And so I started off as a parts guy at a motorcycle dealership. I mean, I had an education and I was sure. way overqualified for like what I was doing. Right. But I said, this is where I got to learn. And I learned customers. I learned the product. I learned how to work with manufacturers. I mean, like that was those, those four years were probably the most formative years of my career. Uh, in terms of setting me for my future. What's changed about the industry since you've started? Uh, the industry is actually, it's become a little bit smaller than yeah. back then. I mean, back then, obviously, back in the early 90s or late 90s, credit was a little looser. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of people were getting financed for motorcycles that maybe weren't really in the position where they should be financing motorcycles. Right. And so as a result, what we saw is we saw a bit of a shrinking in the industry uh, at, when the recession hit and credit dried up. Uh, but the good thing is, is for brands like Ducati and wh- wh- where we're at, we really weren't affected by that because we always sold in the premium and we never had predatory lending or 
questionable credit practices. And so as a result, we gained a tremendous amount of market share when the recession hit. Now, volumes did affect, were affected a little bit as well. Right. But, and then as the market came back, not to the same degree as it was before, as it came back, we retained our share, increased our volumes. And so it's been quite positive for us in that regard. All right. So let's talk about this new lineup 2020. What's different? Uh, what can people be looking for? Well, one of the, the flagship motorcycles that a lot of people are getting really excited about is a new motorcycle that we have called the Street Fighter. And it's this, got a great name. It is, yeah, that it is. And, and it comes from the idea of somebody taking a sport motorcycle like what you would see out on the racetrack, removing the fairings off of it, the, the bodywork, and putting on a really cool headlight and a handlebar. And that basically takes a very aggressive sport bike and makes it accessible for the mm. street. Except for we've taken it and redone a completely beautiful redesign, and it's built off of the V4 platform and chassis, which is, uh, which, which is a number one seller last year for us. So there's that product, and that, that's on one end. And on the other end, we find ourselves into the e-bike world as well. Well, that's what I'm curious about. Tell us how aggressively you guys are pursuing, I mean, and how much your customer wants this. Well, this is something they launched in Europe last year as a pilot project. And then when I saw it come out, I myself being a mountain biker was like, I want that product, even if it's just to have one for myself. Uh, and then we took the last year in taking feedback from our customer base, from our dealer network, and just really to understand and research what that market's like. And it's incredible. It's a very fast growing segment in North America. In Europe, it had actually been going for quite sure. some years. Uh, but our customer base is our first audience for this product because it's branded Ducati, but there's also some really unique technologies in the partnership that we have with the company that's making the bikes with us. So, but what's, how, how well did it sell in Europe? And I know it sounds like you tinkered with it a little bit. Uh, it's going to, the first sales in North America are going to happen in 2020, correct? Correct. So what are your anticipation? What kind of a market size is this or market potential? Uh, well, in terms of market potential, we're actually not looking necessarily at the bicycle business to try and compare us to that. We're looking at the first year for it to be a supplement mm -hmm. to what our dealers are selling and also to complement our customers' lives. So volumes, honestly, we're, it's not something that we're going to be very aggressive on. We, as a premium brand, I'd rather deliver a good experience, not only with the, the dealership and the product, but also for the customer and to be able to build it in a much more natural way. But Jason, why do it then? Why do it? Because it's a compliment to our, the brand and also to our dealers. And our customers love this. And in the motorcycling world, a lot of... A lot I mean, of I'm glad to see you're doing it because I'm kind of all in on green, but yeah. I'm curious, you know. I, you know, I, 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 would, I would be... It would be impossible for me to claim that we were doing this to be green. It, it, it's not that. It's the fact that it's... Appreciate the honesty. It's, yeah. it's a really interesting technology and yeah. product where people can actually enjoy out into the real world. I mean, as an avid uh, mountain biker, I can now ride with people that maybe aren't as skilled as a mountain biker with me and can go for longer. And that's it's that's why it's a compliment right. versus, let's say, uh, a green approach to the idea of bicycle. Is it a quiet bike? Uh, no more different than yeah. than a bicycle would be. I mean, really, you have a little whiz of the electric motor, and, yeah. okay. uh, and it's a, it's, it's assist. Yeah. So it's not it doesn't do the uh, pedaling for you, and right. it's not like a motorcycle where you throttle it and go. Right. You have to put the power in in order for it to assist you to go through it. And so, talk to us about your customer because, as you say, it's higher end, so maybe a little more recession proof. But we're constantly talking to CEOs about what they're seeing from their customers mm -hmm. in terms of their willingness to spend. The consumer has been unbelievably resilient through this very long bull market. Uh, as you know, are you seeing any cracks at all, any caution, any pullback as you talk to customers? 
being through the last recession, I'm always have a bit of cautious optimism as I, we like to use that term. Uh, but we continue to bring out more premium product and we pre continue to bring out product that's on the higher end yeah. in terms of uh, both price that seems to be uh, more resilient than let's say even the more entry level product in our brand. Interesting. So uh, the, they think the challenge that we see is how do we continue to bring people into motorcycling and how do we bring them in through the sub $10,000 motorcycles to help foster new growth and development because at some point, those customers start our, our top end customers start to age out so you right. have to replenish them we're not really having that sort of effect like some other brands are that are let's say have dominated that the baby boomer generation yeah. we're we're less like harley uh, there are other brands yes <laughs> that, but we, I, we're, we're less affected by that yeah. because we have because you have a younger it. demo uh, That's on, what I was average, on average we definitely have a younger demographic uh, but also being a sport brand sport, you it's get different. youth it stimulates yeah. this idea of like I want to relive my youth and so even if you're 44 years old you want to ride like you're a 25 year old right and so for a that, second, I thought you were saying 44 because I'm 45 was older, but I'm just going to let that slide. No, no, no. That is actually <laughs> our that's our average age for a Ducati motorcycle in North America. Because that's what I was curious. Who's your typical customer? Like, or, you know, your your demographic that's yours. Well, I mean, it is it is in that 44 year, 44 years mostly old. Men? Uh, mostly men. It actually with the with the launch of the Scrambler product a couple of years ago, we've been able to shift that trend as well. I mean, we had a, like a 95 to 5% ratio and mostly experienced ratio, uh, experienced riders. Yeah. Right. And with us bringing in new product and actually shifting our communications, we're actually opening the world to more women motorcyclists as well. Very cool stuff. All right. Fun Great to catch up with you. Congrats on the new line. Jason Chinek is the CEO of Ducati North America here with us in New York City in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Are you today. Thinking, you know? I don't know. I mean, actually, the e-bike is really, I, I find very interesting. I find that whole movement, you know, people who go on bike tours and things like that. I hear a lot of good things about that segment. Maybe something in 2020. There you go. Maybe. Huh. We'll All see. Right. Ducati's a nice brand. I know it is. I know it is. I was just like uh, tweeting out. Matt Miller. Matt Miller. He definitely Doesn't has a Ducati. Matt, I think Matt has a Ducati. He 100% has a Ducati. It was, it was stolen in Germany. So oh, he's no. in the So he might be in the market for a new one. Yes. Take it easy. Yeah, uh, I guess you could say that George Soros and the Soros Fund taking it a little bit easy. It's definitely a different era. This story in the finance section of the magazine this week, hitting newsstands as we speak. Also find it at businessweek.com and at bloomberg.com. Uh, let's get into it because it is about George Soros and his fund. Uh, with me is editor Pat Regnier. He's the uh, Bloomberg Businessweek Markets and Finance editor. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Joel, this is a great story. We talked um, with various folks, Kathy Burton among them, who has followed the hedge fund industry, has written a book about uh, the great hedge fund folks. And um, it's a different time for George Soros. We know that. We've seen that over the last De couple of years. Definitely for, for Soros. But um, the story is really about Don Fitzpa mm -hmm. Fitzpatrick, who's the chief investment officer of the Soros of Soros Fund Management. Um, and what's really been interesting sort of on her watch is uh, what the story is about is the, the pull away from risk that's really happened there. And with it, 
have come returns and some internal internal turmoil uh, that's come with that those decisions. Um, and and Pat had been working with Kathy a little bit on this. Um, Katja Porzinski also on the byline. Pat, what did you what did you and uh, Kathy ultimately come down uh, on when you guys were talking about the, this story? Yeah, so this is really a story about a culture shift. Um, if you imagine sort of the mystique around Soros, right? I mean, he's famously the man who broke the Bank of England, and that's just another that way. mystique. That's the well, Wall yeah. Street, like, this guy is like a legend for breaking that. A yeah. billion dollar bet, right? Yeah. On yeah. the British pound. Yeah. And, and he wanted to go even bigger for Right. He also made a big bet on the U.S. elections and and got that wrong in the, right. <laughs> and, right. And, went, and went the wrong way. He's not we, a conservative guy. He's not a conservative conservative guy uh, in in the sense of being uh, sheepish with what to do with his money. And so it's like the definition of macro trading. You're making these big moves. That is um, an interesting and can be an exciting strategy to have when you're talking about your money and your clients who want to take big swings. When you are now running the money uh, in order to support the foundations that you run and they need they need cash to do the things that they need to do. Uh, that requires that you think about your money a little bit differently. And so Don Fitzpatrick, who's come in, she's really been charged with building a money management firm for this new purpose. And that's not always easy for the hedge fund managers who work for her. Right. Well, tell us about that, because she's actually gone on a bit of a firing spree, correct? Right. I mean, so she's replaced uh, 13 portfolio managers. Some quit, some got nudged out the door. Um, you know, a lot of the people who left, they've done very well uh, since then in terms of raising money. People out there think that they're that they're good money managers, but she didn't necessarily feel like it was a good fit for the firm, both maybe in terms of their style, but also in terms of the kind of investments they I have making. to say, what's, what's great about this story, and I love how it kind of kicks off about, you know, kind of a classic Business Week take of just reminding everybody about a podcast that happened where she <laughs> was on it, right? And she basically said, hey, you want to come work for us yeah, th- on the this, podcast with pitching for... I, I think it speaks to, to we talked about this a little bit on on our show before yeah, yeah. where we're at a moment where the hedge fund industry it's not the same industry that it has wow. been before and so for somebody who's running a fund um, associated with Soros to come on a podcast and basically be like hey like if you if you're interested in applying for a job like here's a place to apply I think that really kind of speaks to um, an industry at a certain moment, and I think it got, you know, in the in certain certain hedge fund circles. I I think it really uh, speaks to the moment, and it caught a lot of people by surprise, and was something that multiple people brought up to us during their the writers reporting on the topic right. because it's weird. It's well, it's different. Well, right, different. because you think about Soros, like over the last two, three, four decades, I mean, if you could get a job, everybody wanted a job there. Everybody wanted to be associated with George Soros and managing his money. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this would have been a, a like any manager's dream job. You wouldn't have needed to hear about it on a podcast. podcast. You, you might have paid money to get the email address. <laughs> yes, like big money. <laughs> money. You know, uh, uh, to to send it to send it to, um, and running what is kind of something similar to a university endowment. It is a different right. game. Now, one of the things that we we talked about internally is running an endowment is actually really interesting business, and there's some legendary pioneering money managers doing that business. So there could be a really interesting future ahead for this for this firm but you know it's it's very early days and it's a rocky transition right now 
Well, and she doesn't have to do a lot, but she's got to make sure she guarantees that the purpose fund is spending, I think, about a billion dollars a year. She's right. going to cover that. She, basically, you have to keep it flat, right? right. And like right. that that's not totally easy with that much money that's going out the door, right? Right. Exactly. You describe that as a, sim- as a simple task, but actually, you know, making sure that you have enough money for an institution to live on is actually one of the harder jobs in money management. And not lose money in the process. That's right. That's, yeah. that's what it's all about. Um, so, it, so, yeah, that's, that, to me, like, everything's kind of a strategy story. How do you transition strategies here? And like, she's yeah. in the middle of the this little turbulent period we're trying to get to the other side of it how's she doing so far well so, f- so so far uh she's uh behind her long-term benchmark and a little bit closer to what they call her medium-term benchmark she's been at it for two and a half years that's not a lot of time to measure somebody all right yeah kind of giving her a little bit more time a great story no doubt about it it's in the current issue of the magazine as i mentioned on newsstands now and you can also check it out online jill weber thank you so much editor of bloomberg business week in our bloomberg interactive broker studio pat regnier thank you as well markets and finance editor at Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. It's gonna top on the Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. With us is David Richardson, Executive Director at Impacts Asset Management. $20.3 billion in assets under management. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Thursday. Nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. It's, as I said to you, as we get a little kooky around here, uh, it's been quite a jam-packed week, but I feel like we could say that about every week for the last decade. Um, The market trade, obviously a little bit quieter uh, today as we wait for that monthly jobs report. How do you see it? What are the trends that you are watching when it comes to the equity market specifically? Sure. Our focus has been on the transition to a more sustainable economy and the growth investment opportunities that support that. And there are a lot of areas of the economy that are actually pretty interesting that for investors. That sounds pretty positive and pretty upbeat. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, where we're thinking of sustainability is where's the sustainability of returns going to come from in the future. And we think growth and things that have tailwinds in growth are interesting. Well, it is sustainability week. And we've been doing certainly a lot of things here at Bloomberg, including a global responsible investing forum. I was involved in it earlier this week. Talk to us about the implications of climate change, because it can be a huge risk for various industries. And I think increasingly because of that, they have to take it into it account. How do you see it? How do you play it? Well, we think that there are both, yes, as you point out, risks and opportunities. And the risks are thinking that the past is prologue for the future. We definitely see lots of changes being driven by climate change, whether that's changing weather patterns and either drought or like we experience here in New York with Hurricane Sandy and flooding of subways. I mean, both of those are investment opportunities in trying to mitigate that. Um, For climate change, there is an adaptation angle, too. Well, so when it comes, you know, what's interesting, I want to I want to ask you, David, because I feel like we've been talking about climate change and certainly um, environmental types of investing for many, many, many years. Uh, I do feel like it's becoming a lot more productive uh, and it's not just kind of a niche or cool thing to do, but there's actually really remarkable returns in doing it. What are what are the bigger trends that you're following that you think investors should be allocating money to at this point? 
So what we think about when we're thinking about climate change is the areas of the economy that are going to be most impacted, and one of those would be in energy. And we see a movement from traditional energy to renewable energy, whether that's wind and solar and storage, sort of repowering the grid is a big theme that's going to be important for the future. But we've been talking about that for a while. What's different about it? Because it's interesting in a day when we've been talking about the Saudi Aramco IPO, right? <laughs> biggest ever, you know, some have said, I wonder if this is the top of the oil markets for them to be doing this. I mean, the changes from, you know, fuels as we've known them, it's, it's taking longer than everybody anticipated. So it, so what is the energy play? What is the right energy play right now? Well, we're now seeing a um, commitment to uh, net zero economies, uh, particularly over in Asia and in Europe. And that is going to be the requirements to do that and get to a net zero emissions economy by 2030 or by 2050 require complete rewiring and repowering. And it's not uh, happening as fast as people would like, but you see the large tech companies committing to uh, renewable energy for 100% of their power. It's driving down costs. Battery storage, I think, is a big theme. It's not yet investable in our view, but uh, it's going to be fairly quickly. The rollout of electric vehicles and electrification of transportation, that's all a movement towards a low carbon economy. And there are some great themes that maybe it's not just the renewable energy, but it's related technology. How do you invest in it? in the most productive way today? The most and productive, by productive, I mean in terms of generating returns. Yeah, sure. For the best way to reduce carbon emissions actually is to use less energy. And so energy efficiency is a theme that we've been investing in, whether that's reducing energy demand in um, ener uh, sorry, uh, residences and mm -hmm. commercial facilities, power, uh, industrial facilities. Those are really interesting. And uh, it's pretty, uh, in some respects, low-tech stuff. But um, we're also seeing that um, with climate change and climate risk, there's a lot of opportunity around water because of changing weather patterns. You're seeing um, drought and we're seeing the horrific fires in Australia and, uh, and California. And I think what's interesting is, you know, a year ago, there were 20,000 people affected by the fires in California. This year, there were 2 million people affected because their power got turned off. Right. And that makes it a headline issue that investors are taking notice of. Now you need all the standby generation because that happened when they, you know, the uh, winemakers were crushing grapes. Right. So now they need standby power and that begets a whole bunch of investment. Is that where you would allocate money at this point? Kind of that standby generation uh, area? It's been one area that's been quite profitable for us. And you've liked that. Um, what else? In terms of electric vehicles, how do you see it, David? Um, you know, all of them are making big bets, spending lots of money. And as a result, they're, you know, cutting back on workers because they're kind of getting rid of out of, you know, businesses that they think don't make sense as, you know, as much. In terms of electric vehicles, how soon before it really is as significant as we kind of talk about it today? You know, like we kind of play it up a lot and it's obviously coming, but I'm just curious in terms of an investment payoff, I think how it, long? Well, I, uh, there's lots of opportunity now. What we've been thinking about is what are the companies making technology that's going to go in every electric vehicle, not the components. just the components, exactly, because there's a lot of new componentry that's required that's different than uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And those products and companies and services have been doing quite well. I think you're seeing a rollout of a lot of new electric vehicle models by almost every manufacturer and new manufacturers uh, 
coming into the fore. China's requiring uh, electrification of their vehicle fleet, and that's driving a lot of innovation and, and growth. In terms of metrics for identifying companies that are doing environmentally uh, sustainable initiatives, do we need to get better in terms of being able to you know, create some transparency when it comes to companies and what they're doing? Just got about 30 seconds. Sure. I think that you know we've had a, a focus on looking at the revenues uh, that are involved in these environmental markets and looking at that first. But you can also uh, measure some environmental impact, positive environmental impact, whether it's reduction in emissions or generation of uh, renewable energy and things like that. All right, it's well, been popular. It's a great topic, and I know like we've been fo- talking about it a lot and focused on it. Um, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. David Richardson, he's Executive Director of Impact's Asset Management, $20.3 billion in assets under management in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.